are live from the empire of lies, an oasis of truth, free speech, and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the new world order under Joe Biden. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Hey, Rod, how you doing today? I'm doing well, Lee. How about yourself? I'm doing great. So we've got a new fancy camera. By new, I mean new. I've had it for about a month, but Danny helped me put it up last night because I'm slightly baffled by things now. But we've got a new camera on the video feed, the wide shot, and uh, those technical changes. But we have a great show for people today. In the first hour, from Moscow, Russia, our good friend Mark Sloboda bring us more reality in a week. I'll tell you what's, who's been freaking out. A lot of the media, the Western media and propaganda machine has been going nuts about this Kursan offensive and saying this is a turning point in the war and so on. Have you seen that, Rod? Yeah, and they're giving, they're, giving, they're giving people a lot of more false hope, that hopium. Yes, they've OD'd on it. And uh, so we'll be talking to Mark about what's actually going on and how people, because the other thing they're saying is they're, they're acting as a, the propaganda machine as though people are ready to overthrow Putin. One gauge I judge these people by is I ask, are these people who have ever been right about one freaking thing in this conflict? Does that make sense? What I'm asking is the media who are now saying it's turned around and in Ukraine's favor, have they predicted numerous times that it was over for Russia? Of course, Lee. And, uh, you know, they also predict that uh, Putin's going to fall sick. You know, he's uh, shaking his leg a little too too uh, feverishly there. So he's, he's a sick old man. He's got Parkinson's and he's got cancer and, and everything else. And dandruff, I'm hearing, that's, uh, you know. But they put him on the Brian Stelter exercise plan and he's, he's okay now. But that's, it's, we're gonna get the truth from Mark Zavada from Moscow in about 10 minutes, is that right, Rod? Correct. Okay, and that's always a great conversation. Then in the second hour, it's two great liberty-loving guests. Carter Laird is with us, and he's actually guest co-host in the second hour. And then we're joined by Eagle Scout and prog rock drummer, libertarian economist, Mark Ross. And that's, I'm looking looking forward to that, because they're both libertarian-ish. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, that's why that's why I booked them together. Yeah, I, I think it's great. And we love them both. And it's gonna be a good show. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. This is the backstory. Now one of the big news things last night was Ron DeSantis suddenly flew up a bunch of illegal immigrants to Massachusetts, oops, that's going to be tough for me, Massachusetts, you got through that one, and Martha, Martha's Vineyard, where the Obamas have a lot of land. And do you know why I think DeSantis 
went there, his influence for doing that. I would say he got it from Abbott, right? From Governor Abbott. Well, also, Tucker Carlson did a piece saying Martha's Vineyard needs more diversity on a show the night before. He did a big thing about all these cities that say they want diversity, but when they actually get diversity, they freak out. And we've got some clips we'll play later. We, we don't have time right now. But they really are freaking out. And uh, when they get it, Eric Adams and uh, Bowser from D.C., they are freaking out. Have you noticed that, Rod? Yeah, right uh, Right before the show started, I saw a woman who was being interviewed in Martha's Vineyard. I believe she's a Democratic politician, and <laughs> she's on camera. She's a, she's a white woman, and she's saying that uh, we don't have— space for uh, these 50 uh, these 50 migrants they're gonna have to go home eventually and you know but you're supposed to be so welcoming and diverse and inclusive and equity but as soon as it's on their front doorsteps it's like no 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 anywhere but here and look on the look on the bright side they made you the gardening you could hire them cheap to clean up your yard in Martha's Vineyard you right you see what I'm saying yeah of course Lee of course because good yard workers are hard to come by in Martha's Vineyard, but not anymore. Let's go to calls, 202-521-1320. Ingrid, what's on your mind? Oh, thanks, Lee. Today, I just heard a while ago on C-SPAN, presumably live, there's a hearing. I'm not sure where. I think it was Senator Cardin on Ukraine. And a Ukrainian woman, the very heavy accent, reading something that was translated for sure and probably written by someone else for her to read about how she was a medic and she was detained by the Russians and she was tortured, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All I could think of actually was, well, how about those incubator babies? How about that story? And I have just, you know, there's, I'm not falling for it. Well, yeah, and this is the empire of lies. So you're right not to buy into it immediately and ask questions. And I'm fine with them showing people who've been negatively affected by Russia's military operation, as long as they show some people from the other side. And they never, ever show people from the other side. They never, ever present the other side. In fact, I was thinking about this. What was Russia supposed to do? Eight years of a conflict that was affirmed by Russia and France. Because Russia and France were part of the negotiating process for the Minsk Accords. And clearly Ukraine was not following the Minsk Accords. And I would try, I would call trying to make peace through the Accords through eight years. And almost hoping because that was all they had at that point, that Ukraine would comply, and France and Germany being unable to make them comply. At least show the other side. At least present both sides. But part of the reason it's the empire of lies is they can only show one side, and they present that over and over. What do you think, Ingrid? I agree. Uh, well... I don't know what I whether I we're just we're just at a bad place where you, you can't you can't believe anything. Well, you, you have to confirm it for yourself. 
And uh, we try to be a good place. You can confirm and get an alternative viewpoint. And we're blasting out over the radio airwaves in D.C. And it makes Joy Reid sick to her stomach. Right, Rod? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we laugh at her. But do we have Mark on? Okay, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined from Moscow by the great Mark Sloboda. Blasting out, get your boombox. And stand for and enjoy Reed's house, John Cusack style. We're going to bring that to you coming up after this break on Backstory. back on the backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington DC we're joined now from Mark is it fair to say Moscow is the heart of the Russian Federation in some senses is that fair to say it's the political heart it's the capital but I mean geographically certainly not yeah what what is the heart geographically what's the equivalent of Kansas in the U.S. in Russia, um, Western Siberia. Really? Wow. Oh yeah, Siberia is a big place. Now, have you been to Siberia? Uh, Siberia, yourself? there's the Far East. Yes, I've been to Yakutia. Yes. And and w- was it a, a nice place to be? Um, I enjoyed what I went there for. The nature is incredible, and uh, I went there for a uh, a solstice shamanic celebration. It was quite impressive. You're in my general age range. So, you know, if I tell you my view of Siberia was affected by the show Hogan's Heroes, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. But what does Hogan's Heroes have to do with Siberia? Well, they always talked about they would. Sergeant Schultz would send people to the Russian front. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Remember Clink talked about that a lot? Yeah. 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 You're, you're, you lost you lost all the the millennials you're they're gone they they just signed awfully <laughs> yeah well you know I can only do so much and if if you, you millennials ever want a, a good comedy about World War II prisoners Hogan's hero is the place to be they, could they possibly make that show now mark I'm not saying they even should but could they do you think I mean, there was just this inglorious bastards, you know. Maybe yes, a fiction yeah. film about World War Two. So, so Mark, how you doing today? I'm alive. How are you, Lee? I'm doing fine. So, so just alive. Uh, that's my general state of being. Okay. So let's talk about what's going on in uh, now the the region. I always get the name wrong. The where the Ukrainians made the advance. Uh, I guess yeah, I I can get Kherson, but it's not Kherson. It's Krat. What say the name of the region, Mark? Yeah, Kherson is in the south of Ukraine, and Kharkov right. is in the northeast. And I've seen some people talk about Kherson, where the Ukrainians totally failed in an attempt, an offensive, and that yes. offensive started a couple of weeks ago. So let's be clear. 
They started one offensive, and that was a dismal failure. They gained no ground and lost a lot of people in Kherson. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. They continue to and, lose people because they continue to shovel territorial defense, whatever they can throw into that that killing zone. And I just saw more more catastrophic deaths tonight. Just uh, Russia uh, has uh, pulled up the the Tos One A sunburst. It is a thermobaric weapon, a flamethrower, basically a fuel air uh, a, a range launched fuel air explosive artillery. And uh, you would I, I don't wish this on my worst enemies. I mean, maybe on the Nazis, but that's it. No one, no one else. And uh, whenever I hear that thing being used, it's just, it's, uh, it's sad. It's sad. That's all. Now, am I right in thinking that Kassan, I haven't heard people say this, but I'm saying it, and I want to see if you think I'm right. Kassan, Russia has to protect Kassan in a sense, in terms of protecting the people of Crimea, which is part of Russia. Because it helps. The yes. U- Ukrainians had cut off water to Crimea by building a dam around Kherson. They they built a dam to cut off the the supply of water to the people of Crimea because they wanted to punish them collectively for choosing wrong. Right. It's not a matter of winning back their hearts and minds. Right. You don't win back hearts and minds. It's they are the enemy and they all deserve to suffer. Never mind, of course, that it is a war crime and a crime against humanity to to cut off water supplies uh, deliberately like that. That is exactly what they did. And the Western mainstream media was crickets chirping. They mentioned it occasionally, but then they, they, they just didn't examine it at all. Very much like uh, Israel cutting off water supply to Palestine. Right. No, no, it's a major thing. And, you know, I, I think the Russians has three stated military objectives, demilitarizing, denazifying, and uh, I, I'm actually forgetting the third one. Yeah, the, the, but, demilitarizing, denazifying. No joining NATO, return to the neutral status right. of the Ukrainian constitution before the putsch in 2014, which was enshrined, as well as recognize that Crimeans chose to join Russia and that the Donbass chose to be independent. Those were the right. original, right. original terms, Russian terms. Yes. Those are not and the terms. In, in the original Russian terms was recognition of Crimea. Yes. And it goes, goes along with that. Not stopping messing with Crimea, recognizing yes. and treating Crimea as a part of Russia. And so yes. I think the Kherson, Russia's got an extra bit of incentive because Kherson helps to achieve that goal. Am I correct, Mark? Yes, but also Kherson is is still in the East Ukrainian area, right? It's in the south, but, it, you know, the east of, of, of the Dnieper. Um, and if you take a look at the voting patterns in, you know, the south, you know, all of East Ukraine, uh, including Kherson and Zaporozhye in the south, uh, both before the putsch in 2014 and after, they continually vote for what is referred to in the Western press as the pro-Russian parties in Ukraine, now all banned. Um, uh, so um, the majority of the people there 
are, uh, you know, if you want to say pro-Russian, Russian sympathetic, not rapidly anti-Russian, however you want to term it. Not as high as the percentage in Crimea and Donbass, but still a majority. So um, Russia is, and who they have already put back in charge of Hearthstone is their old elected leaders, right? Um, the the people of the parties that the people of uh, Hearthstone had elected, the parties that had been lustrated and then banned, they had, you know, after 2014, they have been put back in power. The, the current governor of Hearthstone province is the former mayor of Hearthstone, uh, who was uh, um, uh, of Hearthstone City, which is, you know, the capital of Hearthstone. And he was also before that an elected RADA member from from Hearthstone uh, as well. So this is their own politicians being put in charge of the civil administration there. This is returning the people of South and East Ukraine, uh, the politicians there uh, that had been repressed for the last eight years. And so, Mark, I bring that up because if that Kherson offensive had succeeded by Ukraine, I would have considered that a disaster for Russia. And it would have been very bad because it was part of their original goals. And obviously, they want to keep the people of Crimea safe from being messed with again. But that didn't happen. That Kherson offensive was an utter failure on Ukraine's part. But you agree Losing Kherson, that would have been bad for Russia, right? Yeah, yeah. Strategically, there are whole. You know, it's. I, I think one of them. Here's what happened. All right, let's let's break it down. Uh, let's let's go big picture for a second, right? Since Kherson uh, and Zaporozhye were taken quickly in the first Russian initial thunder runs into the country, there was very little fighting, right? A lot of the people in Kherson just switched sides. Let's be honest. Okay, um, uh, or they stood down. They, they, there was very little fighting, um, and then Russia settled a, a few weeks after that into their rhythm. Right, they withdrew from the thunder run attempt in Kiev uh, and Chornohiv in the north. It obviously didn't work as well as it did in the south. So mixed results. Then they set into their primary military mission, which was to methodically grind through these extensive concrete and steel fortifications, layers on layers and multiple lines of defense mixed in with the Soviet-built factory fortresses with their nuclear bunkers um, and the tight urban agglomeration of eastern Ukraine that, that Ukraine, that the Kiev regime had built up defenses there for eight years. So charging that head-on is, is suicide, right? Very, very... Inferior forces can defend. It's very favorable to the defender. So Russia set into the strategy of uh, they would soften each defensive fortification for a couple weeks ahead of time with just massive artillery and rocket system bombardments. And according to the Kiev regime's own numbers, they're dumping 50 to 60,000 artillery shells a day. Right. Um, and only after there's no sign of anything's moving would they send uh, some uh, uh, forces ahead to probe uh, and clear out whatever is left. 
right? If, if there was still defenders there, they would pull back again and pound again for a while. It's slow, methodical, street by street, fortification by fortification, house by house, because every apartment building turned into a, um, a defending firing point. And it has to be said that the majority of the ground-to-ground fighting there is being done by Eastern Ukrainians, by this forty to 50,000 Donbass militia. So the majority of the, the head-on fighting there is Ukrainians against Ukrainians, or Ukrainians against former Ukrainians, or, or however you want to term it there. Uh, they're supplemented there by the Chechen uh, brigades um, uh, and also by the Wagner uh, Wagner uh, security contractor, the, the the Russian mercenary company of of fame and infamy, depending on which side you're on, which they call the orchestra. Um, so they uh, that is what has been going on there, slow at their own pace to minimize casualties on their own side and achieve their aims with very heavy uh, casualties inflicted on. Kiev, that is what has been going on for months. And you'll say, oh, it's stalled. Oh, it's exhausted. You know, Russians aren't doing anything. And then two weeks later, they'll finally update the maps and they'll go, whoa, oh, they just took this territory. And again and again and again. Uh, And they're on the last two defensive lines in Donetsk. They've already cleared all of Lugansk. It's fully liberated now. But Kiev has not been sitting twiddling their thumbs all this time. Um, They have been what they call mobilized, they drafted the entire country, right? Males between the ages of 16 and 60 are legally not allowed to leave the country, right? They have to bribe uh, heavily to get their way out of Ukraine. Uh, They've been, you know, fought up volunteer battalions and then forcibly conscripted everyone else, right? Um, And they say, uh, and then, you know, some modicum of training and so forth. Um, They say that they have built up a million-man army which they need because their first army is essentially completely destroyed at this point. Um, I, the one million is an exaggeration, but, but you know, when you count in police and National Guard and the Banderite battalions and everything else, it might be five, 600,000, maybe even a little more, you know, depending on how you're counting it. That is substantial because the Russian intervention force is self-limited by Russia's own definition of a special military operation. How many troops can participate, which they have essentially capped at 150,000? That's it. That's all that have ever been involved there. That's supplemented by 40 to 50,000 East Ukrainians. That's their own and choice. Mark, let me stop you there for a second. What you're saying is that it, calling it a special military operation is not just playing games language. It's not just No, Russia, it has the legal not, import. Yeah. Right. It's not want Russia not want to say war. Right? Yeah. No, no, no. It is just, I mean, there's a lot of people in Russia now after this Harkov fiasco, right, where there's a lot of public pressure on the Kremlin to change the status of the SMO and make it a special military operation. Because that 150,000 strong force, Russia has a one million strong active duty military. One million. And they're only using 150,000 plus 40 to 50,000 Eastern Ukrainians fighting on their side. They have 2 million reserves completely untouched. There's no even need ever for a talk of a draft or a full 
mobilization like what the Kiev regime has done. If they called up even a third of the reserves, you know, to supplement the uh, the uh, the million uh, strong army, they could. But in terms of how many they can use, in terms of what they're allowed to target and what they're not, in terms of what resources and gear they get, they are limited by Russia's own legalistic definition of the intervention as a special military operation, because they view it as they are not at war with Ukraine they or the Ukrainian people. They are at war with the West-backed regime that seized power in the country in 2014. That's the way they define it. And up until now, they have severely restricted themselves about attacking infrastructure, um, railroads, um, um, uh, electricity stations, uh, all, all these sorts of things, because they didn't want to inflict unnecessary suffering uh, on the Ukrainian people as a whole. And because of the total state of the war now, uh, with, with NATO, you know, on this completely. I mean, NATO are everything now is NATO arms, NATO training, uh, NATO intelligence, CIA and, and European commandos on the ground directing the forces. You know, it, 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 they're everything. It's a war against NATO, except Ukrainians are doing the, the dying quite often, actually, on both sides. So um, the, there's a lot of calls to change this now. And there's some evidence that they may be starting starting to. but. Um, Ukraine had to come up with a new strategy. The regime had to come up with a new strategy. And they sat down with the Pentagon, and the Pentagon planned and wargamed this, their new counteroffensive strategy. They planned this for months. They, they, they built up these uh, forces, um, you know, shoving, you know, conscripting people into duty. And they kept most of the weapons, 70% or so of the weapons that the West was supplying. Uh, they they kept out of the front and they kept in the rear for this this planned counteroffensive, and they they have to take advantage of their strength and Russia's weakness, right? Russia has these battalion tacticals, which are very what they call fires heavy. They all got their own discrete artillery, rocket systems, tanks, electronic warfare, air defense. They're very fires heavy, but they're infantry light. Right. They like warfare on the battlefield at a distance, whereas uh, and so the, and on top of that, there's this 150,000 Russian forces self-imposed cap. Now, the Kiev regime has very little gear, like all, all the West has supplied them is only a fraction of what they've already lost. Um, and uh, what they have is manpower, you know, cannon fodder. So the strategy uh, that the West came up with. For, for Kiev is to uh, basically attack everywhere at once or in rapid succession, at least, you know, with across broad fronts with basically quick mass rushes of diversion reconnaissance groups, followed by mechanized infantry and the cannon fodder. Right. Um, so hoping to exhaust Russian fires the you know, the, the artillery, the aviation uh, that ha would have to be putting out fires everywhere, like whack-a-mole. And uh, in Kherson, this strategy failed, and it's continuing to fail because they keep shoving uh, troops into the death trap. Truly horrendous casualties. In, in, in Nikolaev, Odessa, Krivoy Rok, the, the hospitals and morgues are full. 
it's 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 tragic uh, and it's cruel. This strategy requires on be willing to accept huge casualties um, uh, of of the cannon fodder. And the regime is willing to do this. So in the South, they have to charge across flat open steppe. It's completely different from the terrain in the Donbass and East Ukraine that Russia is waging their own offensive in. And it has been for months now. Um, and so they lost badly there. A tremendous, trem- uh, tremendous casualties for essentially Ukraine no lost, gains. Well, yes, lost Ukraine badly lost, there. Yes. Yeah. Now, but then they lost their They were about to launch their second counteroffensive in the north. This was the most lightly garrisoned Russian area. And Russian take a look, took a look at this. They saw this uh, offensive in the south where they had amassed their own defenses. They had amassed their artillery and aviation. It was flat open step, and they knew they could handle that. They saw this coming uh, counteroffensive in the north. They also no. saw that Kiev has also been building up for two more counteroffensives that have not yet come, but will soon. This is in the southeast from Ugladar to Mariupol and in the south central to Zaporozhye. Those are going to be coming in the next few days. They're, they have not been launched yet. They're, they're just probing. So, in Ugladar, so- they removed their defensive mines. So Russia prioritized, and they said, we cannot, with this 150,000 cap, we cannot defend everywhere at once. So they, with, they made the decision. They quietly, uh, uh, more than 10 days ago, started withdrawing their forces from Kharkov under the, the guise that they were actually reinforcing it. And they only left a token stand behind, behind force, some 1,200 that were mostly Rosgvardia National Guard-like uh, and some militias, and the, the those when the Ukrainians came in quick with their diversion reconnaissance groups, followed by the mechanized infantry to swarm around and envelop any resistance. There was very little because the, the Russian goal was just to help facilitate some last-minute civilian evacuations of the, the, the Kharkov residents who wanted to get in before the regime's, uh, you know, um, purging battalions uh, came in to conduct their their um, cleansing operations of anyone who even took any humanitarian aid from the Russians, because even that is now classified under Kiev regime law but as collaboration. You take food or medicine, you're a collaborator. That's, that's, and and that's, by the way— the Ukrainians are not shy about admitting this, right? They no, are they're, the no, they are not. They, they open the saying go, they are filtrating, they're filtrating the people of, of Kharkov right now. I, I think it is a betrayal, and I think it's politically problematic for the example it sets. I mean, how do you tell the people of Mariupol? Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, we retreated there for strategic reasons because we couldn't defend everything at once because we've limited ourselves to using only a fraction of our military. Uh, but but we, won't, we won't surrender you in Mariupol. You know, that, that's, that's hard to say. Uh, so anyway, it was, a, it was a cold strategic decision. They withdrew. There was very little actual fighting. Most of this was punching air, right? This celebration, um, and Russia got, you know, ninety-eight percent of their troops out, tactically in good order. And they repositioned them. They're repositioning, still in the process now, of getting them to the south, 
towards these two other counteroffensives that will probably be launched in the next week or two. Uh, in Ugladar, uh, the Kiev regime has already removed the defensive mines that they placed around that direction, right? You do that when you're getting ready for an offensive, and there have already been probing attacks in that direction. There is a substantial armored fist there. Poland did far more substantial than 16 American HIMARS. Poland sent 230 refurbished T-72 Soviet-era tanks. Uh, that the Ukrainians know how to use, they they know how to repair, much more useful to them than a lot of the other gear, and an equal number of infantry fighting vehicles. So they've they've husbanded quite a bit of that. So that uh, right now, both sides are racing troops to these new fronts that are going to emerge in the south as major front. I mean, there's always been a little bit of fighting, but again, the strategy here is to attack everywhere. Was the Kharkov? operation, in a sense, in this narrow sense, a success for Russia. I understand they had very low casualties. I would not call it. The Ukrainians. I would not call it a success. Yeah, I would not call well, it a success. Well, in the sense of very low casualties for Russia. Yeah, in the sense of casualties, it's almost everything that I've seen says that Kiev probably still suffered five to one. They lost five for every one that Russia, and Russia only had a very small number of troops there to begin with, right? They, they, they got them out under good order. And while the Ukrainian, the Kiev regime forces were running in quickly, they were, of course, subjected to, um, you know, art, heavy artillery and uh, uh, aviation and rocket systems. So, the, the, yeah, they, the, everything so, I've said, they suffered really high casualties. So, yes, in like military terms. It's, it sounds but like there were political consequences. Is is, yes. And, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it sounds like what you're saying is the chief problem Russia had was limiting themselves to a special military yes. operation. Is that your yes. your opinion? That is, and I, I, there's I and a lot of other people in Russia have right are very unhappy uh, with the Kremlin for still limiting the operation, and there is a big political push in Russia, not against the war, but criticizing the Kremlin for not moving this to a real war uh, in, in, in their own self-limiting terms, yes. Now, Mark, my understanding is that Vladimir Putin finally made some statements on what happened in Kharkov, but I can't find a good, dependable translation of them. Did you? Is that accurate? Did, did Putin comment on this? I have not seen any Putin comments on Kharkov. It may have happened. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Because... Even that information is hard to get here accurately. So yep. uh, do you think eventually he's going to have to, if he hasn't, do you think he's going to have to address this with the Russian people? Yeah, I, that's not the way Russia conducts their military campaigns. The, the, the Russian Ministry of Defense speaks about military matters, and generally they're still very tight-lipped. They have things that they'll say and things they'll just never talk about. Uh, Russia, you know, it's— it's got its plus sides and its negative sides, but the Russian Ministry of Defense, the Russian government, is not in the the PR game of their military, right? They they are 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 not, uh, shall we say, engaged in the propaganda information war, because the propaganda information war is mainly about the English language, Western media, and social media space. And to be perfectly honest, they have not that much concern about it. 
They really, I mean, a limited, right? You know, okay, they'll, you know, you know, they've got their their organs that will do their thing, but it's really not their top concern. And for them, their top concern is operational security, that they stay quiet about what they're doing to limit the information that gets to the other side, right? Um, in the and, beginning and of this conflict, you saw, saw Kiev troops, everyone out there with their own cell, their mobile phones and everything. Well, that proved a disaster for them, right? Uh, both in terms of a lot of the pictures they were sending out were actually not very nice. Um, and um, Russian electronic warfare units just use that to pinpoint their units every time they turn on their mobile phones and they get hammered by Russian artillery. So they've learned not yes. to. And now you'll see that there's a much reduced flow of Kiev regime troop, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, battlefield footage from from mobile phones and the like, because it has it has proven to be not very healthy for them. And within a couple of days of the Kharkov operation, I would say possibly, and I want your opinion on this, Mark, did Putin respond militarily? Because that's when we saw the electrical plants taken out. In yeah, that's Ukraine. not what it, that's not that's not what it was about. Okay, what did you think that was about? That's it was not some type of reprisal. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, there's two things, right? There's usually not just one decision here, right? One factor, two decisions. First, the Kiev regime had been attacking electrical supplies in the week prior. They've been attracting electrical supplies, well, in Donbass for the last eight years, knocking it out whenever they can. They did the same thing in Donetsk again. They also attacked Russian electrical supplies across the border from Kharkov in uh, the uh, Belgorod region of Russia. In fact, Bellingcat was on Twitter boasting about how the uh, Kiev artillery took down half of the electricity supply in Belgorod. Um, and they continued their attacks on the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, which forced uh, you know Russia to, ha to have the staff there shut it down, uh, the last reactor that was online. So they said, all right, so you have obviously made it clear that you consider electricity supplies fair game. Okay, well, then it's fair game for us too. Secondly, I told you that there is a rush to move troops now by both sides for these big upcoming Kiev counteroffenses that are only just now starting to take shape in the, the south, right? In the Mariupol direction and possibly in the Zaporozhye direction. Maybe both, maybe one and not the other, maybe one is a feint, but definitely they're both rushing forces down there. Now, how is this done? Mostly with trains. Because moving this number of troops on roads, expending fuel like that, you know, it's it's it, it, it doesn't work really well. So it's done by trains and the trains in Ukraine are mostly powered by electricity. So these strikes on the electricity, they serve twofold message, one reprisal for Kiev regime electrical tax and two to cut off the electricity supplies to interfere with this. Both sides rush this race to get equipment to the south because every hour counts in, in the you know assembling uh, the defenses or the offenses there on each side. So that was a very uh, very tactical decision in that sense to to buy logistics time for Russia, which has a slightly longer route to get troops there, and it seems to to have been uh, effective. Now all of those re I believe that a big goal of the Kiev regime 
uh, offensive in Kharkov was they didn't expect to take all of this. They didn't expect Russian forces to just withdraw. They thought that Russia would send in their reserves to fight for that territory, tying them up in the north. Well, they then launched this more important, probably bigger and more decisive counteroffensive that is yes to come in the, the Mariupol and Zaporozhye directions, uh, because it is more important for their strategic goals. But Russia did not do that. They didn't send their reserves, in, you know, their mobile reserves in. In fact, they moved all their troops from Kharkov towards the south instead. Now Russia feels it has enough forces to defend there. It just couldn't defend everywhere at once. They prioritized, and those those areas were prioritized. And unfortunately for the the people of the Kharkov region who had, you know, uh, uh, you want to call it pro-Russian sympathies, whatever, you know, the normal attitude of East Ukrainians, uh, they, they paid the blood price for that. Uh, they, they did try hurried evacuations, and there were long queues, convoys of cars trying to get into Russian territory, into Belgorod, trying to get into Donbass territory. Uh, and and the, the, the goal of these last, uh, you know, stand, uh, uh, stay behind troops that Russia left there was to get them out and shut out the lights. They largely did that, but I'm sure there were lots of people that didn't make it in time or just couldn't leave for whatever reason. And uh, we've we've already seen uh, enough of of the Kiev regime, you know, people going through their filtration of these cities, posting videos of themselves committing their their purges. So uh, it's well, it's so not something I like to see. Speaking of posting videos, I'm going to tie in two things that I think are an escalation by the U.S. I have seen more videos in the past couple of days by people with American accents fighting in Ukraine. In fact, cliched American accents, Southern accents. There's one guy, you probably saw him. He's basically like, look this, we got some Soviet stuff here. Hey, boys, tell them where we are. You saw that guy, right? I did not see that yeah. one, but I, I, I've seen plenty of them. It's so, and also today NATO is saying they may supply jets to Ukraine. Do you see an escalation? I would say bold, clearly showing Americans in Ukraine and the move says, saying NATO will send jets. And how do you think that will turn out for NATO in Ukraine? Okay. Okay, so first of all, about the American troops, I've seen what seems to be increased numbers of quote unquote mercs. I, I, you know, the Washington Post long ago announced that the CIA, U.S. special forces and commandos are on the ground in Ukraine. That was admitted to by the Washington Post. They said with a wink and a nod, they're just directing weapons into Ukrainian hands and instructing them what to fight and how to fight it, but they're not actually participating. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. You know, we, we, you know, sorry, we, we all remember or, or, you know, have read enough about Vietnam, right? We, 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 we know the, you know, the way these, the, the, these trainer advisors on the battlefield works. All right. So um, are there regular, I haven't seen evidence that there are regular forces there on the ground yet, but there definitely seems to be more, uh, you know, not, these aren't just, Mercs, you know, individual guys. This seems to be uh, U.S. Uh, mercenary companies that are, you know, sent with, you know, full permission 
of the U.S., uh, if not them actually paying for it as well. Um, so um, there definitely seems to be an increase to that. On to the fighter jets thing. This is a red herring. And, you know, even in these reports, they're talking about medium to long term, right? It's not like you can just send some F-16 to Ukraines and the few pilots that Ukraine has left are going to climb into the cockpits and fight dogfights in the sky with them. It takes long times to train people to use different aircraft, right? They have to be trained for months. They have to be able to put these birds in the air. They have to be able to do maintenance. They have to have parts and supplies. They have to train technicians as well. They have to train people to handle the armaments. It just it doesn't work, you know, like like people, I don't know, wish it would, that they could just send planes and then Ukrainians would be by first of all, they have very few pilots left alive at this point. Right? Russia and has how many, you know how many airports do they have actually, Mark? Places Russia to land. All, almost lots of them. But they're all vulnerable. Russia has had a campaign of really again, they have purposefully not chosen to take out Ukrainian airports except for a, a few specific, you know, military specific ones and a few other incidences when they were using civilian uh, airfields for for military aircraft in a situation that Russia deemed, you know, vital to hit. Uh, so they still have lots of airports to use, but they're all vulnerable, right? They can be hit by Russian aviation. They can be hit by Russian cruise missiles. I mean, Russia's firing cruise missiles from the Caspian regularly. You know, they can hit whatever they want, uh, and they've got good on the ground and satellite intelligence. So that's another thing. Where do you fly them out of? Out of Poland? Well, that makes NATO then a direct participant in the war. Uh, so there's all sorts of reasons. It's not going to happen. What is happening is that all the former Warsaw Pact countries that are now part of NATO have been sending their old MiGs and other uh, Soviet uh, aircraft to Ukraine. And that has been useful because those, they, they know how to use. They know how to repair. They know how to operate them. Unfortunately, most of them have all also now been shot down. Uh, Ukraine's uh, lost effectively. The Kiev regime has lost two air forces now, their own and all the old. Uh, ironically enough, Russia is fighting all the old Soviet equipment that they handed out to the Warsaw Pact. They've been doing that now for months. Um, and those inventories are almost exhausted now, though. I mean, Russia has been demilitarizing effectively not just Ukraine, but NATO. And NATO is having big problems. They don't have much more to give, right, that the Ukrainians can effectively use. They're, they, they, NATO is running out of artillery shells right now because their military industrial complex was not built up over the last 30 years to produce artillery shells. It's kind of like a, regarded as an antique part of combat or something there, because they've been fighting counterterrorism operations and invasions of third world countries where, you know, they just have total air superiority and, you know, uh, it's just massive bombing campaigns and the like. This is a, a, a very different war and artillery in Ukraine, like it was in World War II, is the king of the battlefield again. And Russia, the U.S., they've sent their M777s. They've sent all they can. They're not sending any more for a couple months now because they don't have any more to send. And they don't even have any artillery shells for them. So they've downshifted to a lower grade, 155 millimeter artillery piece and shells, which they still have a little bit left of. But if you you read into the the military details that U.S. is desperate 
basically trying to find contractors that can pl- supply, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of shells, you know, uh, in a time that Russia is producing millions of shells. Um, they, they just can't compete in that regard. And that's why the conflict is still being pledged largely in Russian hands, where Russia has defended strongly, right, has, has made a, a choice to stand. They've won. Right. Where they're still making the chance to to uh, uh, expand in the Donbass, they still are. But again, this self-limitation meant that they had to sacrifice something and they chose it to be Kharkov. Whether that decision was right or wrong is a a matter of more controversy or just the fact that they've self-limited the size and scale of of their intervention thus far. That's that's uh, another matter. And I've I have my serious disagreements with the Russian military policy there. And and Mark, let me say this. I've known you a couple of years now. You've been coming on my various shows here in Sputnik, Fault Lines, and now the backstory for a couple of years. You strike me as a very bad propagandist in the sense <laughs> that you're, you seem, because you seem re, slightly irascible, occasionally you seem like, you know, impatient, would you agree with that? You, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I don't mean insulting. I mean, you're not yes. a guy to put on a glad face for the purposes no. of presenting a rosy picture. What's your philosophy no, I, I, on that? I, 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 I'm cynical. Uh, I, I regard cynicism, yeah. fatalism, and pessimism to be my, my top virtues. Yeah. <laughs> and as an analyst, I find that if I assume the worst— the worst of people and the worst of situations that, um, uh, you know, uh, as a default rule that I generally write more times than I'm wrong. Right. I, you can call me Mark Cassandra Sloboda if you want. No. Uh, yeah. I criticize the Russian government all are the you, time. Are and they you still saying the pronouns are changing to the mark? Be honest. What? You said to call you by a woman's name. So I'm asking if your pronouns are oh. changing. Yeah. You can call me your majesty. That's my preferred pronoun. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, it, we we don't buy into that ideology here. Yeah. <laughs> good for you, and and I'm sure your wife's very happy about that. But uh, the uh, you strike me as someone who's who genuinely likes Russia and likes it so much that you don't feel a need to lie about it. Does that no, I don't. And, and, and no, it's true. You're right. I support the intervention. I I I think it's also fair to say that I'm more more pro-Crimean and East Ukrainian in many ways, because that's where my, my wife and their, our extended family is from, than I am pro-Russian. And oftentimes I, I put their interest, uh, you know, uh, above, above, you know, the Kremlins. Uh, sorry, I do. And, and I think they've, they've, they haven't always done the best over the last eight years that they could have. Uh, now, so I critique the Russian wh- government all the time, just not from the perspective of a Western liberal. And yet they still keep putting me on Russian media, Russian domestic media, Russian foreign media. So, you know, maybe they're not quite as totalitarian as uh, the Western propaganda makes them out to be. Well, also because I've noticed you have a couple of fabulous new coats in your wardrobe. I've noticed that, Mark. Am I wrong? I I. You are wrong. Actually, I have not bought a new. You're, you're talking uh, suit jackets, right? I, I have yeah. not bought a new suit jacket now in like two years. Actually, I just 
had a, a substantial inventory uh, that I, I can change, you know, and have several a week. So you're no, okay. you're wrong there. Max. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> sorry. So thanks for I should. Me. I should. I should buy a new. <laughs> Final question I want to ask you. I understand there were recently local elections, and Putin's party did very well in the local elections. Do you take yes. that as a vote of support, in a sense, for Putin nationwide? Does that show? Yeah, I, I, what- yeah, yeah. There were there were recently municipal elections in Moscow and in broad areas of Russia. You know, local city officials, basically, um, and uh, I. The uh, the the size of the uh, you know the success for United Russia candidates I think is generally a rally around the flag effect. Um, that being said, uh, neither my wife nor I voted for our local United Russia deputies. Just saying. <laughs> right, but my, my so, wife is so you're not is, saying my wife, that... my, my, my wife is a communist, so she votes for. The main opposition party in Russia, the the, the communists. Not that the they are any do? less. Yeah, uh, the communists. Uh, they 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 did a little worse than usual. A little worse than usual. Um, but that said, the communists are just as, if not more, gung ho about uh, the the situation in eastern Ukraine. They're they've been criticizing the Kremlin for not changing the status of the special military operation uh, to something more. Um, substantial. Right. Now, as always, Mark, a great conversation, and you filled in and cleared up a lot of stuff. Do you expect Russia's, have we heard the last of them in the the uh, uh, Kharkov region? Do you think oh, Russia's no, going to no. try to take that, that back? Oh, yeah, but it will be maybe, it will be well into next year, maybe the year after. You won't see it this year, but oh, no, no. I mean, this this only ends now with regime change. The goals have changed. All right, they, they, the West has made it impossible for anything else, as has uh, Zelensky in Kiev. So, I mean, th- that's the only way this ends now. But uh, it, it it will take its own time. This is going to be a long conflict, uh, and uh, not this year. Maybe towards the latter half of next year. Maybe the year after. But oh yes, I mean. Russian forces will be back in Kharkov, I and can guarantee you. Mark, great conversation and great appearance. Say hi to your wife for us. Send our regards. Mark Sobota from Moscow, Russia. After we take this short break, we'll come back and be taking your calls. 202-521-1320 here on The Backstory. back on the back story and on 105.5 fm and am 1390 in the capital of the empire of lies washington dc this is the back story and now we're very happy to be joined by our guest host co-host on thursdays often carter laren hey carter how you doing i'm doing well how are you doing lee i'm doing fine so uh Great conversation with Mark Sabara last hour. I always like talking to Mark because he is a no BS kind of guy. 
And so it's yep. like having a friend in Moscow who tells that she is straight. And it's so hard to get accurate information because, as Mark said, Russia doesn't talk much about what they're going to do militarily. And all Ukraine does and their Western backers is talk. So are you finding it hard and keep do you even let me back up. Do you even care to keep track of what's going on in the Ukraine Russia war? How important is it to you personally, Carter? Uh, I mean, it's not actually that important. I, I keep track of it a little bit, but um, it is hard. Part of it is it's just uh, difficult to keep track of because, you know, I hear, you know, you hear about the you know, Ukrainian um, pushback and how the how the, the Russians lost all this ground and it's terrible. But then you go if you go and read Russian sources, uh, it's all about how how many troops the Ukrainians lost in this and it wasn't worth it. And like this, you know, this is all fine. Uh, so it because you can't trust anyone and it's half world away. And I don't think it's any of Americans business in the first place. It's pretty hard to stay motivated about sorting all this stuff out. No, and, and there's a small cottage industry of people who are obsessed with it. But, you know, we're on Sp- Sputnik, so we try to cover it. And we try to cover it actually fairly. If there's something, does this sound like it's a solid epistemological way to approach it? When I see something that Russia says, and it's confirmed by Ukraine, if Russia says they lost a battalion, and Ukraine is saying we're losing five to one troops, I go, well, it's probably true. If both sides agree, it's probably true. What do you think about that, Carter? Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. but I think for most of us, we're getting our news from NPR or CNN, and you know it's so untrustworthy that uh, a lot of people aren't hearing the other side. And of course, a lot of normies are told that anything that you say, leave, is necessarily biased or whatever. So uh, I think you know people have to actually be interested and hear, hear your reasoning uh, and really care to kind of get at the truth. So. I understand why people might be checked out because I'm tempted myself sometimes to check out on this. Well, I would say because of the influence of media, actually, let's get to the boom. Coming up this hour, Mark Frost, economist, Eagle Scout, Prague Rock drummer, Mark Frost on the... And and Carter, what's the name of the show? You're listening to The Backstory. Well done. So, if I say that it seems like on a mass scale, the media, the politicians have always believed in it. But on a mass scale, the media has bought in to the fallacy of ad hominem. One of the most basic fallacies. Would you understand? I know you understand it. Oh, yes. Would you agree? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And it's not just on this this issue, although it's very clear with this issue. Right. But it's uh, it's a, they've been doing that. I mean, they did that with the entire COVID thing, um, you know, and they did it with they do it with the Trump stuff. You know, the only argument they would make half the time is so and so is a Trump person, as if that's a, that's enough to discredit what they're saying. And they do that with Putin all the time. Well, you know, you're just saying you know you're just repeating what Putin says. Those are just Russian talking points, uh, which obviously that's not an argument. Um, you know, if if Putin said it's two a, plus two is four, that doesn't saying- make it wrong. It's the equivalent of saying, well, we can't trust you, you're Irish, 
But we can't trust you. Yes. You've got big ears. Do you agree? Right. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And it's that it's a tactic that's only really necessary for people to use if they don't have a real argument. So whenever I see someone resorting to that, I typically assume that the people being attacked with ad hominem are correct, because otherwise uh, there would be a, a real counter argument. And if all you got is ad hominem, that doesn't bode well for your uh, the facts being on your side. Now, this is slightly a show note because we're going to get, get, get this guy's a guess. But you know what I got in the mail yesterday? What? From the publisher, Andy Bernstein's new book. Oh, cool. So what is his a new, new book? book. Why Johnny Can't Read. It's a critique of the education system in our country. And I talked to Andy. He's my former high school teacher. And Carter knows who he is. He's a well-known person in the objectivist community. And he's written several books. And I spoke to him about a week ago, the first time in almost 40 years, about 35 years. And it was great to talk to Andy. And Andy and I love each other. And obviously, you know, it's a bummer to talk to someone after 35 years and they say, how you doing? And the answer is, well, I've had six strokes and I'm going through a divorce. That's not a good way to start it off. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, but it's the truth. But uh, yeah, it's not the most uplifting yeah. conversation. And, but I said to him, I don't view myself as a victim. I view myself, uh, believe it or not. I, I just don't, I can't, I don't view myself as a victim. I view myself as a person dealing with problems, but I think a lot of people deal with problems. And I got to say, my girlfriend, Danny was very excited about Andy's book. She's a big reader and she grabbed the book and she's been reading it and loves it. So we're going to get Andy Bernstein on the show with us. I think in the next couple of weeks, Carter, are you excited? That's, I am super excited. I think I have a copy of the Capitalist Manifesto sitting on the shelf behind me. Um, so, and uh, you know, I we I had a few mutual friends with him. Although I think I maybe only met him once or something. He doesn't know who I am, but uh, I, I like his mind. I think, uh, and I also like the New York attitude. He's he's kind of a a typical New Yorker, but also an intellectual. And I like there's kind of a juxtaposition, a just uh, juxtaposition there for me that uh, that I enjoy listening to. Yeah, he's from Brooklyn. And uh, it shows. He sounds like he's from yes. Brooklyn. Absolutely. There's no doubt. Absolutely. But do you know where Andy went to college by any chance? I don't. Yankton, South Dakota. Really? Yes. He went to Mount Marty, which is a local Catholic college in Yankton. But it's known to its students as Mount Party. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that from, from Andrew. Uh, but. Right. And imagine Andy's Brooklyn accent in Yankton, South Dakota. The, <laughs> the nuns loved him. I, I heard about Yankton, South Dakota from Andy before I'd ever been to South Dakota. Yankton was forefront in my mind. But anyway, we'll have Dr. Andy Bernstein on the show in a couple of weeks. Now, this brings up something that I sort of brought before. We've had we're having Mark Frost on at the end of the half hour. And I would describe you and Mark. Have you talked to Mark before? Possibly on this show, I think, but not outside of your show. Now, Mark's a great guy, but I would describe him and you as libertarian-ish. Would you agree with that vague 
Yeah, that's fair. Right. So in other words, what's the ish part? Where, where do you break ranks with being called a libertarian? I think there's a fundamental disconnect I have with libertarianism in that um, I, I like, like an objectivist would say, um, I'm my libertarian views come from the recognition uh, of individual rights and man's primary means of survival uh, as being his reasoning mind and, and the, uh, the political motivation to preserve individual rights. And I think a lot of libertarians um, are much more, I would say they focus on freedom without making a different a differentiation between freedom from consequences of reality or political freedom. Um, and I think they're, they're less philosophical in nature, which is, I think, I believe was the nature of the split in objectivism early on was this disagreement about how, how much libertarians are allies, uh, with rational philosophy. And, you know, some of them are, uh, and there, there are a lot of allies, but you know, some of them aren't. And I've also seen, you know, Look at the way it's hard to even define what libertarianism is, which is why I'd like to say libertarian ish as well. I mean, look at Reason Magazine. You had, you know, people really advocating for for lockdowns and that kind of stuff. And that used to be kind of a bastion of libertarianism. You see Cato make similar kind of arguments. Um, You've seen a lot of uh, Trump derangement syndrome from some kind of, well, uh, I'll say institutional libertarians. Where Mark Frost got off. Is libertarian candidate for president in 2020 endorsed Black Lives oh. Matter? Yes, she was horrible. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, that's where I got off the bus. I, I recently actually rejoined because the, the Mises caucus or joined for the first time. I was never a member, but the Mises caucus took over. And um, I have a little bit of hope that maybe they can do something with the Libertarian Party. But yeah, Joe Jorgensen started tweeting a whole bunch of woke leftist essentially racist progressivism. Uh, and it was, uh, so disappointing. And, and I know a lot of libertarians just checked out at that point, but not all. And the th- right. The thing I like about the libertarian party is believe it or not, is partially that there's because there's more freedom to move. And so I think the libertarian party, when it's run by the right people, so someone like Joe Jorgensen got the nomination for president, but someone with you or my views could also get the nomination. And in some political parties, let's take Republicans, people with you or my views, there's no freaking way you're getting the nomination. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, you might even see that this next, uh, this next run, you might see Dave Smith get the Libertarian Party nomination, which uh, he certainly wouldn't get a nomination in any other party. So, um, yeah, I mean, that is good. And there, there's things I like about them. But I think it's a fundamental. Fundamentally, I don't think they're um, philosophically grounded and grounded enough. And it leads to a whole host of um, policy positions that I don't think are always well thought out or consistent with the underlying uh, philosophy. But they make room yeah. for that in the party, so it's a little bit of a free-for-all, right? The, the, right, and the free-for-all nature is what I'm saying. It's a mixed blessing, but 
It's a mixed bus, busing. I think it's a strength, right. actually. And Command Central, I'm going to go Tarif first, then Owl Killer on the calls. 202-521-1320. Tarif, hold on, Owl Killer. Tarif, what's on your mind? Thank you all for taking my call. I got um, four things I have to say. The first thing I have to say, free, okay, wait. First, I'd like to say free joining signs. Uh, okay, Diane Sale is running for Congress. I mean, Senate. Senate for, I, I know I said that yesterday. If y'all don't mind interviewing her so she can uh, explain the reasons why she's running against Chuck E. Cheese Schumer, you know. My, uh, my, uh, my second comment is... Uh, the PMC Wagner Group, a uh, Russian mercenary group, is offering um, people pardons and um, um, paroles that's in the Russian um, penal system, right? That's 475,000 people. They're only going to take the not-so-bad people. They ain't going to take the child rapists and the you know, murderers, but they'll take other people, right, into the military to go fight in Ukraine. My, um, my third comment is this. Uh, when the Republicans take over, they have to be make. They have to listen, listen to everybody. I'm African American, right? Um, they have to sit down and talk to African American people uh, with the um, the assassinations that happened to Luther King, Malik Shabazz, which is Malcolm X, Mega Evers, right, and other things. And also bring up John F. Kennedy um, assassination, too. Um, look into that, even though they might be hard to, you know, they, it might be hard for them to get the documents because Biden not going to sign off on it. We already know that. But look into it. Top the, the DNC. And also, uh, my last thing is this. The British Empire, what they've done to the world for the past 300 years was evil. Just because the woke left is not everybody on the left is woke. You know what I'm saying? But they have some people that's on the left that is woke, and just because they came out against the Queen, I mean, I mean against the British Empire, excuse me, doesn't mean they was wrong with that. Because people have this this idea of the if the woke left comes out against somebody, then the other side might be right. No, that's not true on this case. The British Empire really messed over India, and they really messed over Africa, and they they messed over the Chinese with the um putting pushing all that dope into the Chinese to destroy that Boxer Revolution. So. Yeah, that's my only gripe with some things with the people that's on the left do. Whatever the woke left says, they could just go after them, but it's not the case on this one. You know what I'm saying? The woke left was right on this one. But also, like, let people know the woke left, to me, is a controlled opposition to access to destroy the real left, which I'm part of. Thank y'all for taking my call. Great call, Tarif. And uh, the woke left is controlled by the establishment left, which is pro-British royalty. So uh, they have no consistent position there. And uh, uh, so, Carter, what do you think? Uh, on the other hand, I, I think some level of balance, people need to, I don't see, I'm not really angry about the queen because as a representative of a monarchy, she's not the worst person. That's Prince Andrew. So that's my take. Carter, I, I don't have a lot of emotion about it. Carter, what do you think? Well, I mean, I don't have a lot of emotion about it either, because for the past several decades, uh, it's been a largely ceremonial position. I mean, um, obviously, I'm not a big fan of the aristocracy and and monarchies. So 
that, that kind of goes without saying, but I think, you, you know, I heard, um, I heard the other day, I forget who it was, someone characterized, um, you know, the divide in, in this country, the political divide in this country. And they said, the only thing that they're really united by is they hate nuance. Uh, and you know, what really shocks me is the, uh, the Manichaean, the black and white thinking when it comes to the queen, Oh, England and the monarchy is always horrible and everything's horrible about them and you should hate them. And, you know, uh, let's take this opportunity to stomp on her grave. And then there's the, the reverse, which is, Oh, they're awesome. And we need to, you know, wait in two mile long lines to go look at her coffin. It wasn't she the best. And the truth is like most things, there's a lot of nuance in British history. Yes. The British did a lot of bad things as did most other empires throughout history, not just European empires, but let's keep in mind, the British also ended slavery around the world and used their, their, their tax dollars to go literally blockade, stop raid slave ships, free people like they, they spent a lot of resources ending slavery around the world. There are good things that the 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 crown has done in the past. It is a mixed bag. I'm not I'm not advocating for monarchy, but I think I think when we fail to be able to have nuanced discussions about history and people's role in it, uh, it, it there's no point in even talking at that point because there is there's very few people that are you know obvious like Hitler and Stalin who just like okay they're they're clearly all bad. Fine. Uh, there's there's not much of that in history. Most of it's nuanced. And also, uh, what what I find they miss is that a lot of people in England are mourning the loss of the Queen not for anything that she did politically, but for what she represented to England. Does that make sense? Yes, and and actually, just her longevity. I mean, people keep repeating, "Oh, you know, right. she was in power with with Winston Churchill, and she's you know been around this long." And I, I think she's just a representation of uh, English history at this point, you know, UK history, and and all the changes that have happened in the UK since the beginning of her life. And they have, you know, the whole, the world has changed significantly since then, and and she's been kind of a constant. So I think they, she's kind of like a. a it, she, her death is 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 a prompt to look back at a, a significant chunk of the United Kingdom history, and and I think that's what's happening, including stuff like the Beals, because one of the most one of the memories I have of Queen Elizabeth is John Lennon saying "Rattle your jewelry" when the Beals performed for the Queen. So that and that's like fifty years ago. So. She's been a part of people's consciousness for so long in England, and the people, much less the people who remember World War II, and they keep calm right. and carry on. So, lack of nuance, I agree completely. Now let's go to our calls, 202-521-1320, the killer of owls, owl killer. What is on your mind? Thanks for waiting to Hey, I see uh, Twitter got you to put another tie-dye shirt on. It's my general wardrobe. Oh, yeah, I, I just have to say that after, after the other day, you're getting bent out of shape. Not really, but uh, about me bringing that up. I'm going to have to vehemently disagree about um, two, two points. The problem with the Libertarian Party is that it has become a bed for just absolute atheism and nihilism. and the half of it is just people that want to do drugs, and it, I I don't care if you want to do that. That's if you do drugs, that's their deal. I I I'm against drug war, 
But where is the Libertarian Party coming out against the Federal Reserve, like Ron Paul did, like people like Austrian economists come out against the Federal Reserve? That is the source of all the evil. I don't disagree with this at all, but that's just a, a more direct way of saying what I said, which is they don't have a philosophic foundation. Right. And my, and, and let me repeat what I said. If you think that I'll color, my advice is join the Libertarian Party, because if you stood up and end the Libertarian meeting and brought up the Fed, no one would boo you. It's the only party at the Republicans or Democrats. If you brought it up, they'd either roll their eyes and look at the floor and be embarrassed or shut you down. If you, you want if you want more focus on the Fed, the LP is a place you could get it. Do you agree with my point broadly there, Carter? I would. Oh, absolutely. In fact, there there is a lot there are a lot of libertarians who are Ron Paul libertarians. They love the end the Fed stuff. Uh, I think the Mises caucus which just took over this year uh, has a large percentage of people who, uh, you know, just follow them on Twitter. And the Fed is is a common uh, discussing discussion point. So I think it is uh, they they are they do exist. However, uh, Al Killer is right. Um, there are a lot of members of the Libertarian Party that just want to sit around and get high, and that's not particularly helpful, productive. And I also don't think it's the you know I don't like the war on well, drugs, but it's not my number one priority. Let me let me give someone. The counter argument to this whole broad line of thinking, Carter. You're saying the Libertarian Party has no philosophical base. Is that not true of every frickin' political party? Does the Republican Party have a base? And why are people Republicans? What I'm saying is applying the same standards to the LP and to the Democrats and Republicans, I would say they're all exactly the same in terms of not having any clear philosophical base. Do you agree? I would say the Democrats probably have a firmer philosophic footing than the other two parties. Um, If I had to rank them, I would say Democrats have the the most philosophical foundation. It's a horrible one, uh, but they're consistent on it, and they argue from the moral high ground, and they have for years uh, based on their moral framework. I would say the libertarians have some people with some philosophical foundation, but they've also got the the kind of nihilists that Owl Killer is talking about mixed in there, and it's not clear who's always in charge. Uh, and the Republicans, I would think, I think the Republicans are actually the philosoph- the most philosophically bankrupt. And the and my evidence for that is uh, they they tout limited government and conservatism, but for my entire life, which is coming up on fifty years soon, they have done nothing. To slow down the advancement of progressivism, absolutely nothing. Okay, Al Keller, what say you? No, 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 dis- no disagreement there. But it, when Gary Johnson came out with a green sports jacket and sneakers, I knew it was a wrap for the Repub- for the uh, Libertarian Party. It, it's been completely co-opted. Then they were having strip downs uh, during their the, the, their party's nomination for president. I'm like, that's it, because I I am a libertarian, but I just the the idea of putting more weight. I mean, look at, I, I think an, the Republican part, I despise them. Don't do not get, don't get it wrong, but you have an MTG, you have a Thomas Massey, you have a Rand Paul and they actually have, they are garnering support and they are changing 
people's opinions on things. They're saying things you could, nobody was talking military industrial complex with the exception of Ron Paul in Congress. Nobody was talking about the deep state and the new world order. These are, these are common talking points. Now um, I do want to, I do want to touch on the queen Elizabeth thing. No, she- wait, 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 one sec, Alcohol. Let me make one last point. In buried, buried in libertarian philosophy, going back to its inception in the 60s, there have always been two schools of libertarians, the left and the right. There have been the people who are influenced by Ayn Rand, that's largely the right rational people, and people who are influenced by Murray Rothbard. And Murray Rothbard was with the SDS. He was a Vietnam War protester. And that was essentially the difference early on. But, Carter, you know about that. Would you agree with me that there have always been two philosophical strains in the LP? Yeah, and I, I agree. And I do also just want to clarify, I was, you know, I've, my politics haven't changed very much in 20 some odd years, but I was never a member of the Libertarian Party literally until like last month or the month before. So, Owl Killer, I would, I would encourage you to look at the Mises Caucus. And I, I'm, Maybe I'm being naive, but I think there's possibly a change, and we're not going to see uh, some of the chaos that we've seen in the past. I could be wrong, um, but it seems like the more uh, end the Fed types have taken over. As I say about the lottery, you can't play if you don't win. Wait, that's not what they say. Opposite. You can't win if you don't play. Owl killer, do me a favor. Call back tomorrow because Mark Frost is online and I gotta get to him. Okay, Owl Killer? Owl Killer? Okay, he's gone. So please call back tomorrow. We'd love to hear what you have to say about the Queen. I take it you're not gonna sing God Save the Queen for us, Owl Killer. But when we come back, we'll be talking to our great friend, prog rock drummer, Eagle Scout, entrepreneur. Mark Frost, coming up on The Backstory. And we are back on The Backstory and on 105.5 FM. AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now, great friend of the show, Eagle Scout, entrepreneur, prog rock drummer, economist, Mark Frost. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Doing well, and don't forget, recovering libertarian. <laughs> yes. What kind of show is this? And that's about the, the origins of the libertarian movement and its fragments. I love it. Yeah, well, no, because I, I, I think people should understand the woke elements didn't just come into the party. The Rothbard element has always been there. And if people don't know who I'm talking about, look up Murray Rothbard, and you'll see that there's always been a leftist element of, of the libertarians. Mark, you agree? Yeah. Uh, Rothbard was what I would call the, the father of the anarcho-capitalists, which to me is like zero degrees to the anarcho-communist 360 degrees. And, uh, but basically, they argue the market will solve everything. Everybody is their own government. And you can move in and out of each other's governments with permission 
uh, on demand and supply. And so, but what I don't think gets enough credit, and this kind of goes back to Rush. You and I are drummers. We both love Rush. I got turned on to Ayn Rand because of Rush, because of that album, 2112. You open it up, dedicated to the genius of Ayn Rand. Me, me too. Who is Ayn Rand. So I went and got a little book called Anthem and then read some more books. And then I'm like, wow, I think I might be an objectivist or something. And so I start just kind of reading and stuff. And Ayn Rand had her contemporaries, too. Rose Wilder Lane, Isabel Patterson. The early libertarian movement was women. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. And, and Mark, yeah, I'm not saying you, but did you know anybody who took the Rush Live album all the world's the stage and separated their stems and their seeds on that album? Did you know anyone who did that? I did not. Uh, what we did was we freaked out on the lyrics of 2112. I mean, I can't, I can't exaggerate that too hard. I mean, we were, we were those guys that sat around and we were like a Saturday night live skit of rush freaks. And, uh, and I miss those days because a new album would come out and it would be a social event. It, we would plan it. It wouldn't just be something you go, oh, you know, I downloaded this song today. It was a big deal. We knew when it was going to be released. And it was a party on those sorts of things. But So uh, my friends did that, but they also got high. Therefore, because it was a trifold album, that album, you could separate I the stems on one side and seeds on the other. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, completely. But uh, Carter Laird, have you come across Rush Freaks in your travels? Yeah. I have indeed. And uh, yeah, I, I have indeed. And the 2112, uh, I, I was already an objectivist when someone pointed me to 2112 uh, and said, hey, it's Anthem, but redone. Um, I like Rush, but I, I don't say, I, you know, I never separated uh, seeds and stems on a, on a Rush album. Sorry. The only thing, well, and I'm showing my age, is I did use the giant bamboo paper on the Cheech and Chong record. Congratulations. And I should point out, if people think that is uh, somewhat of a contradiction, you're reading about I'm Randing Getting High. Let me point out the album 2012 also has a song, Passage to Bangkok. And Mark, how would you describe the lyrical content of Passage to Bangkok? Uh, I would say that it is at least a cousin of Timothy Leary. Right. It's basically about flying around the world and getting high, right? Well, you could interpret it as flying around as leaving the world and flying around your own consciousness. Yes. Because most people don't, don't have money to fly that much just to buy weed. But <laughs> they trip. I see. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, the economic, the, the influence and, and Tom Longo, who a lot of people know, he's been a guest before on the show. He's another rush fan turned, uh, objectivist quasi libertarian from Gold Ghosts and Guns, and there's a lot of us out there, right, Carter? A lot, you've seen yeah, but a lot of people who fall in the cake. Not you, but 
Yeah, absolutely. You two are out hippieing me on on your drug trip conversations, though. So you know, uh, I'm the, I'll just be the straight man here and say, yeah, the music's pretty good. I guess you guys have your trips in consciousness. Yeah. So, Mark, why did you be? Why did you? Why are you quasi libertarian? I said it was because of Joe Jorgensen's support of Black Lives Matter. Was I accurate, Mark? That- you were not really accurate, but you were accurate in the sense that was probably the straw that brought that kind of broke the camel's back. It's there's a split in the libertarian movement. I'm uh, I'm much more influenced by people like Isabel Peterson, Rose Wilder Lane, certainly Ayn Rand, than I am Murray Rothbard. I adore Mises. I'm an expert. I'm an expert on uh, Bombavert. Uh, I'm literally an expert on Joseph Schumpeter, probably my favorite economist that's ever lived. But I've never been an anarcho-capitalist. I don't think capitalism can work that way because capitalism has to have firmly established property rights. And in anarchy, the natural evolution of anarchy will be into cities because individuals will band together to fight stronger individuals, and then cities will form, and then tribes will form, and then eventually you'll have the nation-state re-evolve. I just don't see anarchy as a viable system of organizing human beings in large numbers. Uh, so I reject even their premise, which puts me kind of, you know, so if I go to, the, to a conference or something, I'm a socialist, even though my favorite economists are Hayek, Mises, you know, Schumpeter, Milton Friedman, uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, which is kind of comical. But nevertheless, the libertarian movement has not been effective as a, as a political unit, but it's been incredibly effective as a movement. So as a party, we suck. As, a, as getting candidates elected, we suck. But as a conveyor of ideas, we've infiltrated both parties. And the vast majority of most notions of human rights are heralded on the platform of libertarianism. Now, they may pick and choose their scriptures, so to speak, but nevertheless, uh, libertarianism has been a massive influence on multiple sides of the political spectrum, so much so that you even have libertarian communists, which to some people is an oxymoron, but it does show that the movement itself is influential. And uh, that's why it is important, I think, to understand its history, to understand its fragments, uh, and to understand that on some dimensions, there are people that practice libertarianism that, that treat it almost like a religion, uh, something which I tend to reject. I'm more of a pragmatic, you know, let's do the rational thing sort of guy. Now, while we're sitting here talking about nuance and the types of libertarians, let me make an argument that there's a weakness of libertarians because socialists, commies, we would all we have to say is capitalism is evil, and all of us would say yay. And capitalism is evil is a, the most dumb statement. Criticizing capitalism as such, and no one raises their hand to go, well, isn't capitalism pretty good at producing, you know, like our iPhones? Or something like that. There's no subtlety. So, Carter, what do you think about that? The idea that 
our political, I argue, our political adversaries have no sense of nuance. All they have to do is say capitalism is evil, and everyone agrees with that with no subtlety whatsoever on the left. Carter? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, that's the, that's certainly true that there is not any nuance there, and um, especially the modern left, I think, is less about uniting behind a utopian vision. That might have been true in the past, but I don't think it's true now. I think it's more about uniting behind hatred of uh, things that they perceive are fundamentally American, capitalism, uh, Christianity. I'm not a Christian, but I, you know, I think they they definitely perceive Christianity as something that's fundamentally American. So it's a much more nihilistic um, uh, standpoint than it than it has been in the past. And it's but it's you're united in the, their their idea to destroy the product of the Enlightenment uh, and to destroy what made America, uh, I would say, a superior in terms of uh, you know, governments in, in the history of the world. So uh, that's true. I, I do have a question for, for Mark though, about, you know, Mark, you were saying the libertarian party has, has had a cultural influence. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but my question for you there is, I mean, this, this, the concept of rights predates the organization of the libertarian party. I mean, you can read the founding fathers and see this kind of stuff. So is it that, the Republicans and the Democrats uh, were influenced by libertarian thinkers and libertarian culture, or is it that um, they both started out with a clearer concept of individual rights and they've just kind of both atrophied in different directions over the course of history? Well, I mean, you could, I mean, you could trace it all the way back to Aristotle, right? I mean, uh, or even further. Sure. But uh, I, I suppose what I was talking about was in sort of the 19th century America, where the country became a real country, and the concept of rugged individualism really hit home, uh, as opposed to, say, the Quakers, or the Pilgrims, or the, from each according to their ability, you know, to each according to their need, from the, uh, from the collectivist farms in the very beginnings. But in the 19th century, Lockean philosophy uh, was sort of repackaged, you know, with subsequent philosophers. And it reached its zenith, in my opinion, you know, in the, in the Jeffersonian, Madisonian writings, where it's not so much that that was their writing, but they had condensed, you know, the Humes, the Locks, and those sorts of folks into a cohesive theory of the individual, which stood in the face of what had come before, which was millennia of monarchy. And this philosophy said that the individual is sovereign, or at least is highly sovereign. And the, the reason to form governments was for collective action that the market just simply can't do. But it was not the purpose, it was not the role of the state to take care of people like it was technically in a monarchy. And the concept of rugged individualism, I do think, was formed, and it was peculiarly American in the 19th century. I think that's something that is very descriptive of, of the American growth. And it's the only country in history that we have, since we've been measuring these things, that sustained 100 years of 10% growth. It's, it's an incredible achievement. And also, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Sorry, go ahead, Lee. Yeah, 
And I was going to point out that Al Killer was making fun of people like weed. But in a sense, libertarians are in favor of not just weed, but they're in favor of being able to smoke weed, a plant that goes in the ground without being locked in a cage. And I'll say that the world we live in now, where half the states have effectively legalized marijuana, was inconceivable. Mark, would you agree? In the 80s, the idea that the future half of states would legalize weed was unthinkable. And that's a direct result of libertarians. And I don't mind if that's someone's main issue. If what they care about most is not being locked in a cage, I'm okay with that. Mark, what do you think? Well, I respect I respect people who think. I, I, I suppose my least favorite class of people, left or right, up or down, are people that just don't think. They take the pablum that's, that's given them, and they accept it as fact, as if they're in some kind of cult or something. So, uh, you know, I think people should think out the things that they think, and one evidence that you're thinking is consistency. So if you are going, it isn't that I think people have the right to smoke marijuana because there's no costs. There's no negatives to it. And anybody that says there's not is either a liar or they've, or they've never abused it. Of course, there's negatives. There's negatives associated with everything. And it's not a utilitarian argument. I'm not arguing that the, uh, I'm not even arguing uh, from a libertarian perspective that the war on drugs is either being lost or it's being won at too high a cost, even. It's not a utilitarian argument. It's an argument that says, fundamentally, a person owns their own body. And if they want to put something in their body, that's their choice. So I also favor organ markets. People going to school should be able to sell their organs or the right to harvest their organs to an insurance company. Uh, and so when they die, the insurance company can come get their organs. And that they can have money when they're young, when they need it. It's, there's no reason financial markets would not uh, master that. Uh, 9-11. I, it isn't that I wasn't bothered by the, by the attack on 9-11. I was angry. I wanted all those people killed. But I didn't want to sacrifice. I knew they would only win if we passed things like the Patriot Act and the related legislation that that one, sets limits on basic individual liberties, and two, is written so vaguely that 20 years hence, it can be used against people in a very unintended consequence manner. So most libertarians I know are pretty consistent. They've thought out their positions, and they understand that life is a, is a series of tragic choices. There's no free lunch, and there's an opportunity cost to every choice we make. It's as Rush says, let's go back to Rush. You know, even if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And that's the, fundam that's the fundamentals of capitalism, is individual choice. And the, uh, I like what was said earlier about Ron Paul. I think Ron Paul did the world a service, whether you like him, whether you're a libertarian or not. I think he did the world a service by popularizing uh, libertarianism and taking it out of academia and putting it into the mainstream conversation. Uh, so I'm a big, uh, I'm a fan of that. 
And uh, for someone like me who has been a inflation hawk since I've been on this network, what is it, three years now? I've been saying the sky's falling in, the sky's falling in. Uh, I'm very critical of the Fed. I'm very critical of um, normative central banks. That 10% annual growth I talked about uh, that the United States enjoyed, we didn't have a central bank. <laughs> we didn't even have one. Uh, there's no need for one. Which, And then that was all ruined in the fall of 2013 with the passage of the National Banking Act and the 16th Amendment. And that's when socialism started in this country. If you read the famous work by Joseph Schumpeter, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, Section 2, which is on socialism, begins with the first thing that's required to bring on socialism in, in any economy is an onslaught of inflation. And that's just right out of the playbook. And it's, and it's what we're seeing right now. And it's the libertarian types that are risking the shunning the mocking, and that are raising the flag, the red flag, and saying, folks, is this really what we want? Do we, is this really the society that we want governing us? Do we want to give government this much power? Is this wise? Uh, they, haven't, they don't really have a great track record. So we want to give them more power, even though they failed at the last XYZ list of things that we asked them to do? And so I think that's libertarianism, and I would hope we can all sort of unify, at least to some degree, because uh, the Democrats and the Republicans blow it if you have any libertarianism in you at all. What say you, Carter? I mean, I think it's well put. I mean, 1913 is the worst year in American history, I think, with possibly the exception of yeah. uh, the slaughtering of the Civil War. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I—, I, I I agree with it. I guess I'm um, I think our disagreement earlier was maybe when, when you were talking about libertarianism, um, I thought you were talking about like since the founding of the Libertarian Party, that's what's in, impacted the Democrats and Republicans. But you rewound it to uh, <laughs> the 1800s um, and, and even before that. So uh, I think, you know, I think that all makes sense to me. I mean, what is your what is your estimation? I mean, you you've, you say you've been an inflation hawk. Um, I've I've had a few interviews with Peter Schiff, and and he's kind of the one of the uh, quintessential inflation hawks, or that they used to call him Doctor Doom. I think they don't allow him on CNBC anymore. Uh, what's your what's your prediction about when this is going to happen? Because I, you know, for my, I would say for the last ten or twenty years, I keep running around kind of like Peter Schiff, saying this can't go on forever. This can't go on forever, and yet. It just seems to go on forever. And we've printed, uh, what, like $20 trillion in the last couple of years? It just, it's mind-boggling. And uh, I don't know how to call the end of it. When, when, are, when will it end? It, it Mark? Will end, yeah, yes, it will end when there is a crisis that gets so bad and it hurts so much and the world clearly sees it so well that we won't be able to print our way out of it. There's no law of the universe that says the United States of America must continue to exist. However, if we blow it and we fail to exist, it won't be because of lack of money. As you put it very, very well, we've printed an exorbitant amount of money. 
Now, how is the dollar worth anything? It's because other countries have printed it faster even than we have. And as Milton Friedman so famously and correctly said, inflation is anywhere and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. You do not have inflation without expanding uh, the money supply uh, in some way. And w right now, we have two forms of money. We have what the Federal Reserve prints. Let's call that high-powered money. And then we have what the Treasury Department prints that the Fed immediately buys in the secondary market and, and pumps up the price. So we have two... So we have an agency of the federal government, a quasi-agency of the federal government, both printing money like drunk sailors. And so uh, I'm on the fault line show a lot, and they kind of brag me up, and they're like, hey, this guy's been saying this, and he's been right about this, this, and this. But it's not that I'm smart. It's that I don't work for a news network. I don't work for a particular corporation. I have my own little company. I do my own thing, and I'm not affiliated with any particular person, and I can talk and say what the, where the research leads me. And you can't print uh, $10 trillion and over the course of 18 months and not expecting inflation. Anyone that, I mean, that's not even just economics 101. That's just street smarts. I mean, it's just the way life works. If yep. you saturate a market with something, you reduce the price of it. And, and, if, and if that good happens to be money, then across all products, the opportunity cost of, of, of consuming that product has increased. And that's what inflation is. And uh, the press does a horrible job of explaining it. The, uh, the administration gaslights the public about it. And I guess a lot of people just kind of ignore it. And the people truly suffering are the poor and the working and, and the lower middle class, and, and that's the real threat. Capitalism needs a bell curve to work. You're going to get some, some, uh, you know, Jeff Bezoses. You're going to get some Musks, and you're going to get some utter failures. People living under bridges. But the vast majority of the public believes in the system, and they understand that they're under that bell curve, and they can move and change within that space. But what we're heading to right now, for the, about the last four years, the last three years, is a bimodal distribution where it seems like you have two Americas. On one side, you have the people living in the clouds, and they're doing quite well. And then you have the people mining the ore, you know, underground in the caves. I'm showing my age. I'm paraphrasing an old Star Trek episode here. But the point is, well done. won't be able to stand with that bimodal distribution. We have to do something to stop this phenomenon from continuing. And uh, yeah, and it's I, go ahead, Lee. And, and I would say, Carter, anyone who's lost a relative, like a grandmother, knows there's a point where you go, Grandma's not going to make it. But it's hard to predict whether she's going to pass away on Monday or next Thursday. Exactly. You know that things are bad, and I would argue all the signs, the trends are bad. When, when you see the homeless camps in Northern California, what Mark's talking about is on display for everyone, but it's hard for the exact day of it happening. Does that make sense? Yeah, Lee. Uh, Ayn Rand even wrote a book about it. Uh, 
I was critical of it at the time because I'm like, okay, this can't happen. It's an interesting intellectual book, but this can't happen. Anyway, the name of the book is called Return to the Primitive uh, because she was worried that there were people who irrationally valued things more than their own human lives and that there are forces in the economy that would return us to bearskins and stone knives. And uh, it's actually a quite a good book, and it turned out to be a little bit prescient. Yeah, it's an excellent book sitting on the shelf behind me. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what the leaders in Europe are doing. Germany is doing that to its own people and England and all the EU. But we'll talk about that more continually on this show. Fantastic show. And I was glad to have you both on because we got into some, I think, important discussion about the nature of our politics currently. Carter, great job co-hosting as usual. Mark Frost, great appearance. And Mark Sobota, thank you so much for telling us what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. We'll be back tomorrow on the best talk show in the freaking world. This is Lee Stranahan on The Backstory.